The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Um, having Saturday off from studying last week doesn't happen very often, so a couple of friends of mine who are here actually, um, who have Saturdays off, we were like, let's go snowboarding. So we went down to Mount Shasta, and the snow down there was I mean, driving that morning, we were literally having conversations driving to the mountain. Like, should we be doing this? Do we need to just turn around now and try to get home? Um, It was insane. We almost took an exit because we couldn't see that we weren't on the highway anymore. Um, It was just insane. Then we got there and it was like, I don't know, maybe 30 something inches of, of, well, they, you call it powder, but it wasn't powder. It was like heavy deep snow. It was a lot of work. And then we would get down um, to the lodge and go take breaks every two trips down the hill. And um, everyone in there is on their phone talking about how I-5 is closed and where are we going to stay? And we were just like, guys, if we're not careful, we're going to be stuck in our truck because all the hotels here are going to be booked up. They had closed it in Redding. They were closing it at the Siskiyou's. So we just got on our phones, went ahead, reserved a room. Um, the weather ended up changing a little early. Truth be known, we could have probably got home. But um, it's all right. We just partied in Mount Shasta. And by party, I do mean, by party, I mean we spent the end of our evening at Round Table Salad Bar watching To Tell the Truth on a big screen TV. <laughs> so I'm old. Um, they aren't. I am. And it must have bled off on me. So party on Wayne. Um, anyway, a couple of uh, announcements for you. Some of you got that. I'm really proud of you. Um, and you're old too, by, by the way, if you got that joke. Just <laughs> um, couple of announcements for you. Um, if you are 50 years of age or older, you're that's bad timing for me to bring that up, right? You're not old, but there is a flip side of 50 gathering today. It is a Dutch lunch at Applebee's right after service today, right down the road on Biddle. Make sure you jump in on that. Dutch means you're buying for yourself, just in case you're wondering. Um, and then also, um, the women's Bible studies got off the ground last week, and one other of them launches this week. And ladies, you guys are killing it. Um, men, we are so far behind. We, you are. You can clap if you want, but... Um, no, don't, because it'll just make us guys feel worse. Um, the, at one of the Bible studies last week, there were over 60 women at that one Bible study alone, um, over 30 at another. Like, it's just insane what you guys are doing. Um, men, we are looking at kind of restructuring some assignments and things this year to put a much greater emphasis even on men's ministry and do some things like that. But um, it, ladies, if you are not involved in one of those, please stop at the Connect Desk on your way out of here and get the information um, so that you can jump in. Just a really good time of digging into the Word, something we're going to be talking about a lot um, in the sermon today. Um, men also, though, by the way, this is, okay, do not go to the desk, men, and ask about signing up for this because they are not ready for us yet, okay? So men, don't go. Everybody say, don't go. Okay, so don't go, but save the date. Man Camp is coming up this year on April 28th through the 30th at Washington Family Ranch out in Central Oregon. Um, this is the Acts 29 Man Camp where we get together with um, 829 churches from all over the Northwest. And um, it's just that, that facility alone is an amazing place. Um, and this year our speaker is Yancey Arrington, um, just an incredible pastor and teacher from Houston, Texas, is going to be coming up to, uh, to lead that. So uh, April 28th, 29th, and 30th, we're going to start signups very, very soon because there's a cutoff where it actually gets cheaper at a certain point, so we'll let you know. But save the date on that, men. The rest of you, if you have your Bibles on Colossians chapter 1, would you do me a favor and stand with me for the reading of God's Word? It's crowded in here this morning, huh? Yeah. 
You guys, just so you know, that in case you're not aware, there's an 8.30 service as well. If some of you guys would like to come earlier. No, I mean that sincerely. Like some people might not know. There's an 8.30 service you can come to. Um, there's benefits to that. Like lots more seats. Um, the donuts are fresher. And this morning, I'll just be honest, the sermon got away from me. Like I said some things that are probably going to get me in trouble. So you always have that. Like if you're going to go, man, what idiot things is Jeff going to say before he's had like a practice round? You might want to come to that one. Just letting you know. But we love having you here too. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. By the way, that sermon will not be on the internet in case you're wondering. (laughs) Verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love to reach all the riches of of full assurance of understanding and in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace this morning. I more than anyone, Lord. I pray, God, that you would speak, Lord, through the likes of me, in spite of me, and that you would bring your word to bear in the hearts, minds, and souls of of all of us here. If your spirit does not move, this is a waste of time. And God, what we need is not the wisdom of men, but we need the wisdom of our creator and king who knows all things and is in all things and before all things. So I pray, God, that you would move, you would awaken affections, intellect, inspire, convict, correct, lead. And may we walk out of this place, Jesus, closer to you than when we came. So I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O my rock, my king, and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So Jeremy taught last week. I got to tell you, he messed me up a little bit. Um, As you guys know, we are going through the book of Colossians, and in case you haven't figured this out, I tend to be taking my own sweet time. So I'd been doing like two verses, and then I go into study, and I'm like, let's see what Jeremy covered last week. Like 15 verses last week. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, So I I decided I'm going to learn from my brother, because Jeremy has incredible wisdom. So I'm upping the ante for myself, not for him. I'm going to go from two to five. Amen? We're going to do five verses today, all right? That's probably the last time that some of you will applaud for me today, because I may step on some toes. Now... What we do here, for the most part, when we teach, we do verse by verse going through a book of the Bible. The reason that we do that is because we believe that that is where you can receive the full counsel of God. And to as much as is possible, it it takes away from the teacher his own agendas. What I mean by that is this. Uh, If a guy just comes up here and he's always the one setting the stage for what he wants to teach and just picks, chooses whatever series is, whatever comes to mind or heart, it becomes really easy for us to kind of stay in lanes that we're comfortable with and familiar with. So, someone who's really into missions, 
They're going to want to talk about missions all the time because it's where their heart is. And your heart tends to drive you in a lot of ways. And so things about missions will come up all the time. And that's good. Amen? Um, But you neglect other things. Or maybe if you're a doctrine guy, you're always going to want to talk about doctrine and theology, but you may never actually bridge the gap to like lead the people to go, what, what do you do with that, though? Where do you go from here? We just tend to, left to our own devices, stay in lanes we're comfortable with, familiar with, or passionate about. But by going through all of God's Word and just allowing the book itself to be our teacher, um, as much as is possible, it removes the man from the message, if you will. And our goal is to just say, what does the word of God say? And let God's word set the agenda moving forward. And there are things that get said. There are things that we approach that are less comfortable than others. And, and not just for you to hear, trust me, for us to speak. But we do believe that our job as teachers here at Heritage is significant and important and one that God places a great importance on. So we put an immense, I want you to know this, the teachers, whether it's Jeremy last week, whether it's Mitch or uh, Jeremy Hamasu who taught this Wednesday, or myself, we put an immense importance and immense amounts of time and effort into the teaching of the word. We bounce things off of one another. We talk about things. We critique one another. We, we take it really seriously. And I'm talking like 20 or more hours per sermon sometimes. There's a lot that goes into this because it's important that we get it right. Amen? It's important that we understand these things. And so that's what we're doing today. And today in this text, we're going to tackle two things that every Christian needs to grow in. No matter where you are right now, you need to grow more in both of these areas, no matter what. So that means this one's for you. Everybody say it's for me. This is for you. Doesn't mean it's comfortable. Sometimes we don't want to be told things that cause us to grow. Sometimes it becomes difficult. Sometimes there's things we, that push against us and we have to kind of figure those things out. Sometimes it pricks on our pride. But that doesn't mean it's not truth. So in all of these things and in everything that we teach, no matter how much emphasis we put, no matter how much time goes into every sermon, I also don't mean that in the outcome of these, well, he put 20 hours in, so whatever he said is true, you just go with it. That's not what we believe. We believe you need to take these things and chew on these things and approach the scripture yourselves on these things because if God's speaking these things into your own heart, if you see these things for yourself, it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact you much, much more. Amen? And so, two things we're going to be covering. So let's just dive right in. Verse 1, Paul says, For what I want you to know, or excuse me, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face. So Paul starts out by writing to this church that he cares deeply about. This is a letter, remember, not a book. We call them books, but it's really in a letter. Uh, Your your text may say the epistle of. And and that's what that means, epistle. It just means the letter. So Paul's writing a letter to these people. And he says, one thing I want you to know is I've got this great struggle. Is what he says. This great struggle for these people. And even for some of them that he's not met, he's not seen face to face. But he has this great struggle for these people. So there's a, a couple of things we can learn that we know about Paul's struggle. Number one, we know where Paul is, where Paul is struggling. Now he says in verse, uh, what is that, in verse 5? For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith. So he's not with them. Paul's not there. Um, as far as we know, Paul's never been here yet before. It was planted by someone who was at another po- church plant that Paul uh, was a part of. So he's not there, but we know from other historical records and other letters, we know where Paul is. 
He's in prison. He's in a dank, dark Roman cell. Some would say that they believe that those cells were actually holes in the grounds with grates over them. There's different opinions on those, but sure wasn't comfortable. We know that for sure. When Paul writes this letter at the end of it, when he would take his own hand and put pen to paper to sign the letter that's going to these people, his wrist would be weighted down with the iron chains of the Roman army. And the clinks of the metal would come across as he reaches over to write his name. So this is important to understand. Paul's not writing these things from like a cushy million dollar mansion because he's got a 10 book deal with Crossway. Like Paul's writing in a dark place, which in one way is incredibly commendable because if anyone we might say has the right to focus on his own situation, it might be Paul. But he says, no, even though I'm in prison, I have this struggle. And as we're going to see, the struggle's not for him, even though he's in prison. So we know where he's struggling, but how did he struggle? You say, that's a dumb question, Jeff. You just said it. He's in prison. So obviously he's struggling. That's, That's not what he's talking about. Paul writes about the fact that he's in prison several times. The the book that we just finished, the letter of Philippians, probably talks about suffering and struggles more than any other thing that he wrote. And in it, he talks about the fact that he's imprisoned and he's in chain. But the thing that actually brings him more grief, or, or maybe I should say the thing he worries about more, is actually not the fact that he's in prison. He's focused more on the, the reality of where's the gospel going in light of where he is in that moment. So his struggle's not prison. In fact, in Philippians, he talks about the fact, man, I've learned I can do all things in Christ. I can be content in whatever situation I am. So his struggle isn't prison. We would say, well, his struggle is just letters. When he says, I'm struggling, he's just writing lots of letters. And he he wrote a lot of letters. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. So that's what he means by struggle. I'm struggling. I'm writing you guys all of these letters. But that's not it. Because when he writes these letters, most of the time, he talks about the fact that it is a joy to him to write the churches that he's speaking to. So when Paul says he's there, if, if the prison isn't the struggle, if the, the effort or the thought or the letter is not the struggle, when he says I'm struggling, what does he mean? I believe the key to that is actually in chapter four of our same book. If you just probably flip one page to the right, you'll see in verse 12 of chapter four, Paul writes. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, A servant of Christ Jesus greets you always. Always what? Struggling on your behalf in his what? Prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Look at that again. It's the same word. He says, this guy Epaphras, who we believe to be the planter of that church. He says, hey, Epaphras is struggling. Same word. With you always, he says, as you'll see as we, the, the sermon here in the, the letter develops, that the things he's struggling about are the same, but the actual struggle, the thing he's going through that Paul refers to as the struggle is what? Prayer. Now that might be surprising for some of you because oh, the pastor can't say prayer is a struggle. It might be really relieving for some of you because you know in your own life that many, many, many times in our Christian walk, prayer is absolutely a struggle. But I believe that's exactly what he's talking about. Paul uses other language in Romans 15. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive, or in other words, same word, to struggle together with me in your prayers. Paul is a guy who got his knees dirty and struggled and labored and worked 
in his prayers for people. And it's work. Prayer's hard. Can we just be honest about that for a minute? If you, if you agree with me, say it. Prayer's hard. Prayer's hard. It's actually hard. And, and listen, acknowledging that a prayer life or that praying, that there are difficulties, that there are struggles associated with that is okay. It's okay to acknowledge that. We don't have to be fake Christians and, oh, it's just a joy to pray all the time. Liar. You know why that I can say that that's okay and why I can say this is because the Bible says this. Paul actually writes himself in Galatians 5, 17. He says this, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the idea is this. You get saved, you put your faith in Jesus and God puts this new spirit in you that desires to grow, that desires a relationship with him, that desires all of these things. But then you still have this other thing that's called our flesh. It's our old nature that's been around still. And so we have this battle. Paul uses that language a lot, the old man and the new man. The new man, which is really more at first a new baby. That's the words that are used. We're born again. Paul calls us infants in Christ. We want to grow and we want to learn, but we still have this old man nature that we're wrestling against. The thing that Paul says, put the old man to flesh, the old man needs to die so that we're renewed. And so there's this battle between us, our old, selfish, independent, self-willed, self-determining, sinful spirit, lazy spirit even, and this new spirit that God has put in us that he wants to grow and stoke and nurture in us. And so there's this battle between them. And prayer is one of the things that Paul's talking about. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know anyone that just says that, that actually has affections for Jesus, that's actually been saved by Jesus and says, but I don't want to pray. I don't wish I prayed. I don't want anything to do. Actually, most people I talk to are, are much like myself that, that want to pray and feel guilty for not praying enough, right? That's most people. Very few people say they don't want to pray. And he's saying that you have this old nature that's constantly at battle trying to keep you from doing the things of the Spirit that you actually want to do. And why is that? What is it about it that's so hard? There's two things. The first is this. Prayer is a pride issue. Here's what I mean by that. Um, And I think this is for everybody. It's especially for men, right? Prayer is a pride issue because it's before the decision comes, before the tragedy is there, before you deal with what's coming down the pipe, you're making a decision to stop and turn to God first. Something that does not naturally come to men. That's why there's jokes about the fact that we don't want to stop for directions when we drive places, right? I'm I'm just being honest, like we don't. Why is that? Because we're prideful. Because most men want to look like they know everything. Even in front of our spouse, in the car, as we're driving, it's so dumb. Like, we we could be driving somewhere we've never been before. There's no reason we should know where we're going. There's no reason we should know the roads in this place. And not knowing them shouldn't have any bearing whatsoever on our manliness. And yet, we want to look like we know where we're going. We want to look like we have the lead. We want to look like we're after that, that we're going the right direction. We don't need anyone's help because we're man, hear us roar. Whatever. Wrong song. Anyway. Right? That is a prideful thing that wants to look like we have it all together. But the gospel and the Bible teach the exact opposite of that. We've said this a million times, right? 
God raises his children different than we do. We raise our kids to be independent, don't we? My son Bentley. So it'll come bedtime at night and it's time for him to go take his showers and inevitably maybe it's been a long day for me or I just got back from the gym or something like that so I'm tired and I'll sit down on the couch and it's time for him to go to bed and there's that little selfish part of me, I won't lie, that's ready for the kids to go to bed so that the volume level just drops a little in the room, you know what I'm talking about? I'm the only one. All right. I know these men are lying. Anyway, so I'll be like, hey, Bentley, buddy, it's time to go take your shower, go. And so you'll hear his feet, and he runs down the hallway, if it goes well. He runs down the hallway, heads to the shower, and then inevitably I'll hear the feet come running back down. And before he even gets to the room, when I hear him coming back out of the bathroom down the hallway, I already know what it is. It's the same every time. He'll come in, and now he just says one word. He'll come into the kitchen or living room, and he'll see me on the couch, and he'll go, clothes. And clothes means that mommy was hanging up some clothes on the shower curtain rod to dry, and he can't close the shower door to take his shower because there's clothes in the way and he's too short to get them down, right? Common problem. But what I do every time, I'm like, not mad at him, but I get off the couch with that, as you get it, because you're tired and you're comfortable and you don't want to do it. And you have that little part in you that's like, I can't wait till he's 6'4". <laughs> so he can just get the clothes down off himself and I don't have to worry about that, Right? Or how many times when you're like, man, I can't wait till I don't have to change their diapers anymore. They can do that. I can't wait till they can drive themselves to school. I can't wait. To, that's what we do. We raise kids to be independent, to go do things on their own. That's not what God does with the new birth children who are born into the kingdom of God. We are to be raised to be more dependent on God to depend more on God every single day, to realize more and more as time goes on over and over and over and over that we don't have it together, that we need a Savior as much today as we did the day that we were saved. And you find, you go find any seasoned saint. You go find somebody with silver hair that's been walking with Jesus for 40 or 50 years, someone that has given their life to the study of the Word, that's been to pastor's conferences, that's been to churches, that's been part of movements that understands all those kind of things. And you get to that point in life and you ask them out of all the things that you learned, what's the most important part of your just Christian life? And they'll tell you, man, that I just, I need Jesus as much today or more than I ever did when I first ever met him. I just didn't even know how bad I needed him at that point. We are being called into an ongoing dependent relationship with God. He raises kids opposite of us. And so this issue of pride that comes in, like God's calling us to prayer because he wants us to have interactions with him. He wants us to depend on him. He wants us to seek his heart before we put our plans in place. He wants us to seek his wisdom before we work out of our wisdom. He wants us to do those things first. And then the second thing is, it's not just a pride issue, it's actually a faith issue. Because can we just be honest? If we're really honest, wouldn't we say that sometimes that 30 minutes we spent in prayer that morning or whatever it was about the issue, we didn't see any actual fruit that came out of it that day? A lot of times. And a lot of times if we're really being honest, I mean, isn't it easy to come in on a given day and see our to-do list and want to instantly jump to the things that we need to do and not even believe at the moment that that time in prayer before we start doing these things is actually going to do any good? In fact, sometimes we might think that that time of prayer is actually going to mess us up from getting the things done in our to-do list. And if you're anything like me, then you come in and once you start doing anything, the day gets away from you, doesn't it? 
and the calls come, and the next thing you know, the day is over, and you've not spent one quiet moment with God all day. And then those days can turn to a week, and then those weeks can turn into, and on and on and on, right? But, but that's, that kind of happens, especially in our fast-paced world right now where there's stuff to do. Decisions come now faster than they ever have. The amount of work comes faster. The emails come overnight, so you're not waiting on your boss to bring the to-do list each day. It's been showing up overnight. And so there's all these things to do, and the tendency can be, I need to get to work, and I need to start working on these things, and I need to do this stuff. And you can even spiritualize and be like, man, I'm, I'm just using the gifts God gave me. Yeah, but you're using them in an independent way. You've not checked in with your Father. You've not checked in with the Lord whatsoever. You're operating in a way that is completely apart from an actual ongoing relationship with Him. And you can't have a relationship with someone that you never talk to. And so this is kind of what can happen. Before you know it, it's all gone. But what we have to understand, listen, this is not a guilt trip prayer sermon. Please understand that. This is not, you're not even Christians. What's the matter with you? I bet you're on Fox News longer than you're on your knees. Like, that's not what I'm doing, okay? But here's the truth. This is a privilege and a power. I mean, if there is anything that can take us to where God desires us, if there is anything that can undergird the work that we do for God, if there is anything that can thwart the attacks of the enemy, if there is anything that can unleash the resources of God to be poured out upon God's people, it's prayer. But we have to set our pride aside and we have to engage our faith to actually believe that God means what he says when he calls us to do it. It's a faith movement. And it's, don't feel too bad, by the way. Remember Jesus and the apostles? The night before he was crucified, what does he say? Can you guys not just sit up and wait? Can you not just pray with me one hour? This is part of the human experience of the old man and the new man wrestling with one another. And we need to work harder at understanding the benefit and what prayer really is and understanding the beauty of the fact that the creator of heaven and earth wants to spend time with you. Like, Jesus Christ wants to spend time with you. The God who spoke everything into existence wants to talk to you. If it was going to come through a phone call, I guarantee you, you'd find the time in your schedule, right? But we have to have faith, too, to believe that this is actually happening. And so, Paul, when he says, I'm struggling, he's talking about his prayer life. He said, man, I, I wrestle and I labor and my knees get sore in this dank cell as I'm praying for you. Oh, that's awesome. So that's how he's struggling. We know where he is. We know where he's struggling. He's in prison. We know how he's struggling. He's in prayer. But why? Like, what's it about? What is it that he's so fired up about that he's like, I'm struggling in prayer over these things? He says it in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul gives us the reasons for his struggle here. It's what he wants for them. I'm praying for you. And the things that I want from you, there's three things. Number one, that they be encouraged in their hearts. He wants the people of the church of Colossae to be encouraged in their hearts. Now, when the Bible talks about heart, don't go Valentine's Day, don't go mushy emotion. When it talks about the heart, it means the core of a man. The, all through the scriptures, when the Bible talks about heart, it means the thing that drives you. 
the thing that, that guides your decisions, the thing, the filters by which you say, even the words that you speak are driven by this core of who you are. And the Bible refers to that as the heart. So for example, Proverbs 4.23, a great verse to commit to memory. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Or other translations, guard your heart diligently, for from it, your heart, flow the springs of life. What it means is, is, hey, protect your heart. Because the things that your heart is affected by and fired up about and drawn to, those are the things that your life will be molded by. Like the decisions you make will be driven by your heart. Who you are and what your life looks like will be directed by the things that are going on in your heart. So be careful. Elsewhere, the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked, that we can't even really fully know it. And so he's saying, hey, be careful. Protect your heart. Understand your heart. And Paul's saying, I want your heart to be encouraged. Other scriptures, Jesus himself in Luke 6.45 says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart, in other words, the things his heart treasures and values, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus is saying, even the words we speak in a given day are driven by the things that our heart values, the things we meditate on, the things that are important to us. And it's important. My favorite story about this was uh, one that Paul Tripp, who's a really well-known Christian uh, psychologist, counselor, pastor, uh, Paul Tripp wrote a book or excuse, yeah, it was in a book that he wrote. He was talking about when he was a kid, a story that he remembered where he went to a family gathering and they were at, you know, grandma's house or whatever it happened to be. I don't remember the details, but um, he and his brother, when they were really young, were sitting in this room and they're watching like the ball game or something with some of the men while the ladies were cooking food or whatever it was that was happening at the time. And he said that there was this one uncle in the room and every family has the one uncle. You know what I mean? Like it may not be exactly an uncle, but it's the one that you don't want the kids to be left alone with or any of that kind of stuff. They'll come out like chewing tobacco with cigarettes and a tattoo or something like that. So it's that, that one uncle is in there and he was drinking. And the more he drank, the more he talked. And the more he talked, the worse it got. And at one point, the mom happens to come down the hallway, goes by this room they're all sitting in, and she heard this uncle say something, some horrible, filthy, whatever it was that was coming out, just spewing out of this guy's mouth. And and Paul Tripp tells the story that mom was over it. She's snatching up the kids like she's rescuing them from an oncoming train, throwing them in the car, grabs all their stuff, fires up the truck in the driveway, starts to back up, stops, slams the truck or, or the car, whatever it was, back into park, turns around with her arm over the seat, looks at the kids, and he said, I'll never forget what she said. She pointed at him and she said, listen to me. There is nothing in the heart of a drunk that wasn't there to begin with. And this is what, what she means. It's not just that, oh, alcohol makes you say stupid things. No, 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 no. The the alcohol, the drunkenness, it might be the lubricant that lets it slip out, but it's coming out because it's there. And so the issue that Paul says, man, I'm praying for the hearts of the people. That what? That God would capture the emotions and the affections and the hearts of the people in Colossae. I mean, because if God has the heart, God has the man. If God has the heart, God has the man. And even in raising your kids, you can teach towards behavior. We've talked about this so many times. You can teach towards all of these things, but if God gets their heart, he's got them. 
And so how do we capture the hearts of our kids? We tell them about the incredible love of Jesus Christ poured out for them, that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them, that he loves them, that he accepts them, that he loves them exactly the way that they are, that he desperately wants them. And then you let God capture their hearts and affections. And then you get that, the other stuff's going to fall in line eventually. Oh, there'll always be a battle with the old man. Don't get me wrong. But you capture the heart and you capture the man. Teachers in this room, when you're teaching, it's not just intellect. It's not just fact. It's not just, let me just wow them with my Greek scholar or whatever. It's, it's none of those things. If you're not connecting things back to the heart, then you're not capturing the man. And Paul's saying, I want their hearts to be encouraged. I want their hearts to be set aflame with passions for God. Secondly, he wants that they would be united in love. And we've spent a lot of time over this uh, on a while, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one today, but, but this issue of unity comes up in all of Paul's letters, brings it up over and over and over. He wants the church to be unified. And there are a lot of things, I mean, obviously the gospel, but there are a lot of things that we could say, now let's rally around this. Let's find our unity and our commonality around this. And so we could say, I mentioned it earlier, we could say mission. Let's make mission the thing that we rally around. And we could say, you know, brotherhood's born in the trenches. And we as a church are going to find our unity as we go out and do these good deeds, feed the homeless, whatever it happens to be. Um, or, or programs or styles or whatever it is. But, but Paul and, and throughout the rest of the scriptures, there's always this common call to bring things back to the reality that I want you to find unity in your love one for another. It literally what it means when it says the, the united part in there, it means held together. I want you guys to be held together by love. And, and I saw an example of this just recently. So um, there was someone in the hospital in ICU and um, uh, she went to the church here. Her husband was passing away and it was just a really sad situation. And so um, she's a member here at the church. And so I grabbed her shepherding elder and he and I went up to the hospital to go spend some time um, with her and her husband as he was laying there in ICU. And as we were going into the hospital and we were talking, I don't remember how it came up, but he started telling me, I have a lot of history with this guy. I've known this guy for years and we've actually been through now three churches together. Um, and he was just talking about our history together and all those things. And I'm teasing him like, why in the world would you follow me around? Like that makes no sense, but whatever, fooled you. But I'm um, just having those kind of conversations. And this is what he told me. He goes, man, the, I remember a long, long time ago when my son was sick in the hospital and you came and we've been attached to you ever since. It wasn't about teaching, it wasn't about doctrine, it wasn't about any of that. It was about the fact that in a moment of need, someone in the church came and loved them and they were bound like that. And then I got to tell him, well, here's the beauty of it. You're an elder now and you're going into the hospital to do this very same thing for someone else and watch it happen. And I'm telling you right now, I've seen it happening. He spoke at the memorial service. He put up Christmas lights for this gal when she was sitting at the hospital all the time. Like I've watched the bond happen, not between the pastor, but between this elder and this woman because he was there to be able to love on her. In church, you want to see people get knit together? Worry less about the isms. Worry less about Calvinism. Worry less about Arminianism. Worry less about uh, end times philosophies. Worry less even about mission Worry about love one for another. Think of the Apostle John. Remember how he started out? He was a man's man. I know when we start talking about love, and especially we just talked about prayer and pride, a lot of men are going to be tempted to check out. But listen, the Apostle John was like the man's man. He was referred to as what? The son of thunder. And he was so bad. Like he was just like, hey, Jesus, we found some people that they're teaching something different than you. Want us to call down fire from heaven, smoke these fools? 
Like, that's what he said, and he meant it. He was just like, listen, no, listen. Like, he was a man's man. But then you go do the homework and look at the end of his ministry, and you look at the letters he wrote, and you see him over and over and over. Little children love one another. If, if you're saved, if you're in Christ Jesus, you will love one another. I'm begging you, church, love one another. So when Paul's on his knees struggling, praying for the church, he's praying that their hearts will be captured for Jesus and that the outflow of that would be love for one another. Sounds good, amen? But now this third one comes in and it's a little bit different to some. In, in fact, in our culture, in our day and age, this third one actually gets played against the other two and it's wrong. The third thing that gets brought up, we see right here, that they have full assurance, or another way of saying that, that they be equipped, that they have full assurance of understanding. He wants them to grow in their understanding. Now, the Bible does teach that knowledge puffs up. So knowledge for the sake of knowledge is to be Mr. Smarty Pants and look how arrogant I am and look how much I know and I can talk you under the table because I know these things. It's not what he's talking about here whatsoever. But he's encouraging them to grow in understanding. Now, the early church, please understand this, the early church was not ignorant. Like there's a reason we're still studying these letters 2,000 years later. The early church, they were not ignorant. They were not sitting around, we don't know what to do next. A good thing Paul wrote us. I wonder if we'll figure out what this means. But we won't know for sure until 2,000 years later when some dummy in Medford preaches on it. Like that's not what the early church was doing at all. They were smart. And they were students. And Jewish kids in that day, they had scripture memorized. So these were really brilliant people. And Paul here is stating, he's writing to Colossae because there's these teachings that are coming in the back door, you might say, into the church. And the threat that's coming into Colossae is that there are people coming in saying, yes, Jesus is great, yes, Jesus is good, but, but here's the issue, you need these other things too. And, and one of the, the types of uh, thinking that came into the church, Paul's going to use their language against them. It was this belief that, yeah, you're saved, but now you need to grow in this new knowledge and it will unlock these spiritual treasures that you will grow in your spiritual knowledge and understanding and achieve these prizes, that, like this mystery. And those are the kind of words that were used by especially the Gnostics in this particular time. And so Paul writes to them and he says, look at it again, verse 2 says, that their hearts be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is what he says. You know all those things they're telling you you need to learn and you need to ascend and grow and be enlightened? It's all true. But the reality is the thing that you need to grow in, the thing that you need to understand is not just random hidden knowledge, but it's all in Jesus. And so Paul is teaching them to read the Bible forward and backwards. So for example... They got the Jewish influence coming in saying, you have to do these ceremonies, you have to do these sacrifices, you have to do all this. Not just Jesus alone, you got to do all this. He's going, okay, that's Old Testament, but you start at the cross and you read the Bible backwards and you realize all these things have been fulfilled in Christ. It's all about Jesus. 
And then moving forward, this idea of new knowledge and new revelation and new ascendancy, no, no, no. You read now forward and understanding the reality of Jesus Christ. It's all in him, and he's constantly pointing people back to Jesus. What he's not doing is throwing understanding and study under the bus and saying, just stay dumb and worry about Jesus. But that gets preached. Well, they'd never say stay dumb. But there's people that would say, don't go to seminary, don't study, don't listen to professors, don't try to dig deep because that'll just get you in trouble. Just stay with the simplicity that is Jesus. And that can be such an undermining this thing to say, not about professors or seminary, but about Jesus. Because what you're saying is, Jesus is like this surfacey thing and you just hang right here. As if you could ever drill down below the depths of understanding of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. People have given their lives to try to study these things and never come close to these things. He does not pit this false dichotomy between love and learning. And that happens. And, and part of it's our own fault, okay? Because you have some churches that are so doctrinally shallow that you go to a service and learn nothing, but they're so active in the community and they're serving and they're loving on people. And we look at that and go, man, that's good. That's what we should be. And on the other end, you can have churches that are so doctrinally sound that they are preaching the gospel in such a way that just blows your mind. You're like, man, I can't believe what I'm learning. But then it just goes to nothing and the church is kind of dead and, and none of, there's no outflowing to that either. But there's not a false dichotomy like you have to choose love or learning. In fact, what Paul says in here is I want you to love one another, be bound in unity so that you grow in your understanding. He puts them together. Like, hey, you're going to learn more about Jesus as you interact with one another, as your gifts are expressed to one another, as you serve one another, as you love one another, as teachers teach you, as prophets speak into your life, as all these things happen, your understanding of God is going to grow, and I want you to learn. And you need to understand, this is not, it seems like it is on one level a call to simplicity. It's all in him, just focus on Jesus. And in that way, it kind of is. He's saying, hey, focus this way. But what he's really just giving them is a lens to look through and read all of Scripture through. But it's not a call to simplicity. I mean, we have this, this failed understanding and way of looking at the early church that's so idealistic. And, and we, ha we look back and we go, man, we just need to be just like the early church. They just met in houses. They shared all their meals together. They just worshiped and sung all the time. And we have this belief that that's what true church looks like. And anything apart from that is wrong. But the Bible doesn't say that. I mean, we see groups of, I mean, the first day that the Holy Spirit came, 3,000 people got saved. I'm guessing there was some organization that went on in Jerusalem. And then even as the churches grow, you can see organization even in the way Paul starts to do things. This guy's going to minister to these people and I'm going to lead him. All of these things happen. Look, the issue is not the, the organizational structure of the church. The Bible actually doesn't have a whole lot to say about those kind of things. And one of the things we do is we can go back to like, oh, they just had this basic, simple understanding of Jesus and that's where we need to stay. And can inadvertently put the study of scripture under the rug and say, if just be led by the spirit, you don't study, the spirit will reveal to you. And that's a false dichotomy that the Bible does not give. Paul is saying you need to. Why? Verse four, I say this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The original word delude in that sentence, it, it means weaken, water down, or lead astray. So Paul says, 
I want you to grow in your love and unity with one another. I'm struggling in prayer that your hearts will be encouraged and I want you to study and grow in full understanding of the word so that you not be weakened in your faith and led astray by plausible arguments. Now listen, please hear me here. This is where I got in trouble all the time and I probably will now. So before you email me, I need you to know a couple things. First, I want you to hear all of this out. Don't sit on your phone now and start typing your emails. And second of all, just do me the favor, at least wait till the playoff games today are over with before you send the emails, okay? Because I'm just going to forward them all to Kathy, and I don't want to do that until later. But listen, this is really important. This is not Jeff. This is what the scripture here is saying. This is what the Paul teaches, okay? Number one, the first thing is this. Paul's saying, I want you to grow in your understanding, your unity and love for one another. Why? Because there are threats. Where are the threats? In the church. Rarely does Paul write and warn them about the threats outside the church, actually. But Paul talks all the time about false teachers who have come inside the church. That's really important because we have this belief sometimes now in this age of relativity, children of enlightenment, to go, hey, we're all in here and it's not right for us to point out an error within the church because we're all within the church and that's a sin. That is not true. Paul points out errors all the time, names them by name in the scriptures. That's not true. Now, the heart of that is important, absolutely. But Paul is all the time warning about threats that come up from where? With no one? From where? Within the church, okay? That means they're there. You let that sink for just a second. That means there are things inside the church that aren't good for us. Can we agree with that? Okay. The second thing on that is this. What type of argument is it that Paul is saying is a particular threat to the people in that sentence in verse 4? That you might be weakened, deluded by what? Plausible arguments. You know what that means? Good ones. That means things are going to be said, things are going to be taught, and arguments are going to be made that sound really good. That sound true. That sound right. That sound Christian. And plausible there, the word, it means persuasive and eloquent. It means they might capture your heart. That same heart that Proverbs says that we're to guard. So some things might be said that are going to compete for this heart. And this heart is the thing that then drives you and directs you. And we need to be careful. And so he says, I want you. I'm struggling in prayer that your heart will be encouraged. That you'll be knit together with one another. Which probably means you have each other's back as well. And that you'll grow and learn so that you can recognize these things. I'll give you an example. In our day and age, the issue of homosexuality is a big one, right? Inside the church, inside the church of Christianity, there are really plausible, eloquent, good-sounding arguments that are being promulgated and pushed out all the time about why the church or Christians should have no issues whatsoever with homosexuality. And, and listen, I mean good arguments, plausible arguments, attractive arguments. And they'll say things like, hey, look, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality specifically, and so why should we get so upset about that? 
Or they'll say things like, hey, listen, um, they're on their path, they're on their journey, and you're on your path, you're on your journey, and just trust that God's going to work in their heart, and we shouldn't care about the different things that are going on. Which, complete, you, you don't have to read a whole lot of scripture, and I mean New Testament, post-Jesus scripture, to realize that's not what he had in mind for the church. That brothers are going to one another and saying, there's a sin in your life, and I'm worried it's going to overtake you, and I'm scared about this for you, and those sorts of things. Can I just be honest with you? I mean, wouldn't it be easier if that was true? Wouldn't that be easier? Who wants to go make that argument? I don't want to make that argument. Who wants to go to a neighbor or friend or coworker that is in that sort of lifestyle and bring the truth of the scripture to bear in that situation? It'd be so much easier to just go, well, they're on their path and we'll just let them do their thing. And, you know, Jesus didn't, didn't do that. You, and, you know, the, you know, the red letter Bibles, some of you may have those. It, it's totally fine if you have a red-letter Bible. I probably have one somewhere. It, there, can be a, there can be a trap in the red-letter Bible. You know that, right? To start to think that, well, because these are the words that Jesus spoke, they carry greater weight and they're more important or they're more inspired than the rest of the Bible. That's just not true. You know that, right? In fact, the book of John says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word became flesh. And speaking of Jesus himself... Every single word of this book is absolutely inspired, and we don't need to necessarily highlight one as having a greater um, importance or, or truth than any other, because the same Spirit wrote them all. Amen? This is, this is true. And so these are plausible arguments. And if, if we don't understand our Bible, if we're not reading all of our scripture, if we're not studying these things to see what the truth is, when those plausible arguments come, it can weaken you. How does that weaken you? Well, man, we've taken this part of the scripture and said, well, maybe that doesn't really matter. So we'll pull that out. And then the next thing you know, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And the next thing you know, you're taking and plucking and pulling things out and going, well, that's not important anymore. And that's not important anymore. And what do you have to stand on after that? Everything becomes, well, relative. It's open to interpretation. Your interpretation, my interpretation, doesn't really matter. Now, again, this is coming from within the church. I'm talking about within the church that's doing that. And you go, well, it's not in our church. It's not even any important churches. Those, are, those churches aren't all that important. There's, there's more than that. Listen, church, this is where I have to be careful. <laughs> Just because a Bible verse is quoted doesn't make it Christian use of the Bible verse hear that. Just because there's a Bible verse doesn't make it Christian. Just because something was said in a church doesn't make it Christian. Just because a Christian pastor taught it doesn't make it Christian. I will dare admit to you, I have given unchristian sermons from this stage before. You go, what? I have. I can look back in almost nine years now at Heritage and I can see sermons that I've given where I've been, that wasn't Christian. That was morals. That was telling people how they should do, what they should live. You know what makes something Christian? Please understand this. This whole Bible is about one thing. I don't care if you're reading marriage stuff. I don't care if you're reading genealogies. I don't care if you're reading Psalms, wisdom literature. Whatever you're reading in this book, it's about one thing. And that one thing is Jesus Christ. And so if you preach this scripture without preaching Jesus Christ, you messed up. You did it wrong. The purpose of everything in this book is to point us to the person of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul even goes on to say in verse 6, which we'll elaborate more on next week, or 
It says in verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith. Anything in this book is supposed to be understood through the lens of Jesus Christ. So if I come up here and I preach a sermon about anything, especially if it's about us, it's not Christian. Example would be, and this is the one I take heat for all the time, prosperity gospel, prosperity theologians. I hammer them like a nail, and you guys know it. And I only do it, in all fairness, the only reason I hammer on it is because it's an abominable heresy. But other than that, (laughs) other than that, I have no problems with it whatsoever. So here's what will happen. The, the prosperity theology is this. You'll, you'll have, it's so prevalent. It, it's about to be all over our president's inauguration speech, by the way. Um, the prosperity theology is this. God has the best in mind for you, and he just wants to bless you, name it, and claim it. You were, God wants you to be successful. You just need to have faith, all of you know, this kind of stuff. Here's the problem with that. That's not a Christian gospel, because that's about me. That's not about Jesus. That makes every sermon about me and what God wants to do for me and how God's trying to take care of me and what I can have and how I can grow and how I can be blessed. And you go, no, 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 they throw in Jesus at the end. That's garbage. You don't throw in Jesus at the end. It's all about Jesus. And you know what? I'll have people tell me, and I honestly, with all a shepherd's job is to protect and feed the flock and, and not just to give you random food. A good shepherd wants to lead you to good food, okay? And, and so I'll have people go, no, but I got saved under this guy or that gal or whatever the case may be. And I read that book and it blessed me and all those sorts of things. And that may be true. Praise God for that. But that doesn't mean that's where you stay. No kid keeps eating baby food. And, and the, in the Bible, donkeys spoke on behalf of God. I assure you we will not have a donkey on stage for you next week to preach. People have been saved through car accidents. We will not start a car crash ministry at Heritage. Elder Carl, see this hoopty? Do we use hoopty? Is that still a word? <laughs> You're going to park around the corner. And every Sunday when people are coming out of the church, the people that we think aren't quite right there, you just smash into them as hard as you can. Pastor Vern, Elder Vern, your job is to be at the hospital. When they come in, you're going to pray for them, and we're going to watch Jesus just be glorified in this. That might bring people to Jesus. It doesn't mean that that's what God would have us do. And I'll tell you guys, man, just because something's in a Christian bookstore, just because it's on a Christian satellite network or whatever the case may be, does not make it Christian and certainly doesn't mean that's what's best for you. And so I'll I'll give you an example. They they came out with a list, the top-selling Christian books in all the United States in 2016. These are the books in 2016 that sold more than any other Christian books that are out there. Do not email me. One is, the number one was the HGTV show, the Chip and Joni or whatever, Joni and Chachi, whatever those people are. Two are joke books. Number 12 and number seven were joke books, knock-knock joke books. Five children's books, four adult coloring books, three different versions of the Jesus Calling book, four prosperity theology authors, two Dave Ramsey money books, one book by Tim Tebow, the Five Love Languages book, Purpose Driven Life, three books from the movie War Room, and Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend. 
Like so, some of those you might be like, oh, Boundaries, that's a good book. That changed my life. That list is an indictment on the understanding of evangelical Christians in our culture. That's an indictment that people don't understand the reality of the gospel and that we get distracted by so many other things. It's all about Jesus. And we are called to study and to discern. And some of those things you might say, and I'm only saying this because I brought it up accidentally, I've wrestled with this for so long, and now I feel like if I don't mention it, I just totally chickened out since I brought it in the other service. Things like the Jesus Calling book. I know, ladies, put your seatbelts on. Oh, I've wrestled with this for so long because I know how popular it is out there and in here probably. And I know that people have read that devotion book and think it's fantastic and I know that you've been blessed. I know that. But I desire better for you. And I get nervous when I read any book where someone is claiming to speak on behalf of Jesus and it's not actual word for word scripture that they're using. When a book like that, that they're saying, these are the words of God given to me and I'm giving them to you, but through subsequent volumes, it's changed? God's word doesn't change. And beyond all that, if it's, a, if it's a daily devotional and you start on January 1, you realize you don't even talk about the cross in that book till October? How in the world can you depend on the grace of God and not even consider the cross of Jesus Christ until October? I can't wait that long. I need it today. You go, well, don't, don't dog my book. I, I just want better for you. God wants better for you. And he wants us to be students of the word of God and to study the word of God so that we will not be weakened by plausible and great sounding arguments, that we might be grounded in our faith. Because the reality is this, books like that, the, all of those kinds of things that are happening out there, look, we sound less and less like the church of old and more and more like the world around us every single day. And God desires better for us. He wants your life to be about Jesus January 1, January 2, and January 3. He wants your life to be about Jesus all the way. He wants us to grow in our dependence of him. He wants us to grow in our understanding of him. He wants us to grow and understand all of those things. Yeah, but some of those things are good. There's great Bible verses. This is so scary to say after the Jesus call because you ladies are going to be upset. But listen, Satan used scripture to tempt Jesus. And the things that he said to Jesus were super, I mean, some of it sounded real. Jesus, you could turn this stone into bread. Yeah, he could. That's true. This whole kingdom can be yours. It will be yours and they'll worship you. That's true. But it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't God's best. It wasn't what God had for him. And so how did Jesus refute those things? Jesus knew his Bible. Jesus knew his scriptures. And so my encouragement to you, whatever book you're reading, know your Bible. Like, know it. Know it so well that some sharp-dressed preacher in front of 30,000 people on some TV channel, if he slips something in that doesn't make sense, you know right then. Or even worse, or better, I should say, if it's the things that he's not saying, you notice them right away. He's not talking about Jesus. He's not talking about the cross. He's talking about me. He's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about blessings, money, prosperity. Why isn't he talking about Jesus? That should stick out like a sore thumb to someone who is grounded in the scriptures of Jesus Christ. And you go, well, why is that so important? Because the world doesn't need self-help books. The world doesn't need more success. Success is burying people. The world needs Jesus Christ. And, and you know what? You do too. 
Whether you've been saved one day or 50 years, you need Jesus more today than you did yesterday. And my challenge to us, I believe this is Scripture's challenge to us, that we would grow in prayer. That we would grow in prayer. That we'd become people just like Paul who go, hey, for our church, for this church, if, you're, if you call this church home, man, I pray that you and I, just like Paul, would be on our knees suffering in prayer for our church. That you would pray for our teachers. It's a scary thing to be accountable to teachings before God. It's something that we take really, really seriously. One day I have to stand in front of Jesus himself and give account for all of this stuff. If you, if you guys email and criticize sermons, that wrecks me in some ways. Like I'm, I'm a people pleaser by nature and I love you guys. and I don't want to upset people, but that pales in comparison when I stop and actually consider and I don't do it often enough. The reality that I'm going to stand before Jesus one day and he's going to say, Jeff, let me talk to you about something. What a terrifying thing. So pray for your leaders, pray for your teachers, Pray for them. Pray for those that are teaching your kids, that they give your kids the truth of Jesus Christ so that they can grow in that. And pray for yourselves. As you open the Bible, do you pray and say, God, show me this. Help me understand this. Help me read this. Help it to, uh, apply in my life. I, I don't want to have to be spoon-fed by Jeff every Sunday. I want to read today. And you don't need me or any other theologian to grow when you have the Holy Spirit in you and the Bible in front of you. You have everything you need for holiness. So read your Bible. Pray, study, set the pride aside and start there. And study the word. It's not unspiritual to study. It's a hard issue for sure but you need to be grounded in the truth. Paul says, man, I, I've come to you guys. I wanted to give you meat and you're still on milk. May that not be our church. May that not be our people. If I upset you with a book, especially ladies, it's Kathy at heritagechristianfellowship.net. You can email her. This was all her idea. I love you guys. Will you stand with me? Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you that just as Paul says that he, he delights in hearing of how well that church in Colossae is doing, Lord, I do the same. We are so blessed here. Lord, these people are amazing. The leaders we have are amazing. You've really poured out your blessing on us. You have. But Lord, I do believe that the things that have gotten us here are the things Paul even asked for. Love for one another, prayer, the study of God's word, our hearts being encouraged in the gospel, seeking you first, making you the core of everything that we do. And so I pray, God, that success would not take us away from the foundation that you built. May we stay centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be discerning in what we learn. Lord, I pray that, that you would help us, Lord, to understand your scripture for ourselves as we're reading it. But I pray, God, that you would grant us community that we might learn from one another and even, even be exposed if there's understandings we have that are not true. I pray for love in this church, that there would be love between one another and that we would be knit together tightly because of it. I pray, God, that hearts in this room would be encouraged by your gospel and built up and that areas of our heart that are still dominated by sin and by the old man might fall away, that you might continue, Lord, to work in our hearts and mold us towards what you would have us be. I pray, Lord, for our prayer life, 
It's hard and we fail. But God, may we, instead of being driven by guilt, may we be motivated by your gospel. May we be motivated by the privilege it is to come before you. And Lord, will you help us by your spirit to grow in that area? Lord, just help us to grow and to be, to be Lord, um, a city on a hill in a place that, in a time that seems increasingly dark. And Lord, to do that, we need the light of your word. We need you, Jesus. So may you shepherd and lead this church and may you bless its people and be its teacher. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. I love you guys. We'll see you Wednesday night at 6.30. God bless you.